What is up, everybody? Welcome back to Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Ansel Lindner. Go to bitcoinandmarkets.com and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. Okay, another exciting episode of Bitcoin and Markets. This is going to be part two of this week's podcast, and I'm going to be going over the Ukraine-Russia situation a little bit. I try not to turn my newsletter into, you know, a geopolitical newsletter, but especially recently, there's been so much of this in macro, uh, in markets, that we have to talk about sanctions. We have to talk about what's going on with war because it is highly important to markets in general, right? And uh, there's been a lot of financial drama with sanctions and everything, and Bitcoin fits right in there. So this is in the wheelhouse of Bitcoin. Anyway, so let's dive into the Ukraine-Russia situation. Now, the reason why I wrote about this on the newsletter uh, and I'm talking about it now is a question on my Discord server. I have shared my thoughts on Ukraine in there before, and so some guy, uh, this is Dennis, asked me for an update on my opinions, and then he asked me uh, where I get my sources in, in my Discord. Um, so I wanted to cover some of that because I don't really, it's, it's not easy for me to cite sources. I use a model. I use my model of how to view the world, how to view markets, uh, how to view the international situation. So that's what I usually do is I, I read the same article as you, but I apply my model to it and I probably have different information that I get out of those articles than most people. As a broad overview, my model is, I would say the, the biggest part of my model is geographic determinism. Um, this harkens back to McKinder talking about, you know, the one, what is it, the world island and the heartland, Eastern Europe, who controls the heartland, controls the world or whatever it is. Um, he was big on geographic determinism. And recently I've added to that with uh, Peter Zion's work. But I think geography is a hugely important aspect of understanding the world. So on top of geographic determinism is kind of a realist model where it's an amoral thing. For many years I was a nap-loving anarchist, libertarian type. And you would look around and you would say, oh, the, the world should be this way. People should do this. But that doesn't tell you what is actually real, what's going to happen. So to be able to predict the world, you need to look, have a amoral model, not an immoral model, but a model that does not consider morality. It only considers what it is because most people, you know, conflict is very hard and no one knows the truth of any s single situation. So yeah, murder's wrong, but murder and self-defense might not be wrong. So it's very hard to apply a moral compass to geopolitics because uh, you never know the whole situation. You have to have an amoral view that enables you to predict what's going to happen. Anyway, so that's kind of what I've done. And the third part of my model, I guess, would be like an Austrian economics, an understanding of free markets and why they are beneficial. Why are they uh, the most efficient way to organize a society 
and an economy. Uh, and lastly, I'll say that is my experience. So um, I have done my own research for years and years on game theory and on history. And I have uh, 10 years experience in the military where um, part of my job was on the intelligence side. So I, I have some experience and understanding of that world as well. So if you add all these things together, that's my high level model. But I wanted to go through a few specifics. Uh, I don't know if I've done that on a podcast before, but uh, it, it, I know I've recorded stuff on this before, but there during my different hiatus times that I've taken from the podcast, I've recorded different episodes and not published them because it just was taking too much time and, and I didn't publish those episodes. So, you know, they were on the cutting room floor type of thing. But it's possible that I've talked about this before. I know I've written about it plenty and talked about it on Discord plenty, uh, but maybe not in the podcast. So I wanted to go through some specific points of my model and maybe it'll help you um, update or create or maybe assimilate some of these things into your model of how you see the world. So let's jump through some specific points of the model and then apply as much as we can to the Russia-Ukraine situation. So, all right. Number one, U.S. dominance is due to geography, not evil or luck, not central planning and some special exploitation of others. This U.S. dominance is due to geography. We have the best coastline with the best ports. We're on all the trade routes in the Atlantic and the Pacific. We're easily defendable with weak neighbors have the greatest river system, the cheapest transportation within the country itself, you know, the broadest, cheapest distribution system, best soil, some of the best soil in the world, some of the best natural resources in the world. You know, we're the largest oil exporter, oil producer. We were the largest oil producer until uh, Corona. And then there's also climatic things. So it actually freezes in the Midwest which makes it cheaper to have agriculture because the bugs die out every year. If you compare that to Brazil, uh, Brazil has to rely on pesticides because the bugs don't die with a freeze every year. So, I mean, just over and over, the U.S. has the best geography hands down. We're top of the class in so many different concerns of this geography thing that our economy is going to be top in class as well. It's just a fact of geography. So if you're looking for a place to raise a family, I wouldn't go to a place that has really bad geography, poor geography. I go to a place that has rich geography, and that's the United States for now. Number two is geography dictates culture and the economy, like I talked about just there, but culture as well. And this is in the long run. Look at, think of, uh, you know, people in Saudi Arabia, they're Bedouins. They have a Bedouin type culture. Think of the people on the Eurasian steppe. They have a, a nomadic horse culture. Think of uh, the Highlanders in Scotland versus the Lowlanders in England. They have a different culture. So geography dictates culture. And this is, again, in the long run. So you can't have credit bubbles. You can't have different things that affect this in the short run. But in the long run, it's the culture always will return to historical norms. Now, the one 
kind of uh, wild card here is technology. For example, Portugal and Spain were the edge of the world, and they had an uh, okay economy until what? The compass was invented and the sailing ship, the caravel. Technology arrived to turn the edge of the world into a very strategic location that now they became the largest empire that the world has ever seen is the Spanish Empire during the Iberian Union. And so that can affect culture in the long run um, and the economy, of course. I think part of the degradation of the West that people talk about is mainly due to a short-term thing. We will return to historical norms, you know, traditional values in the West. Kind of how I see some of these things like wokeism and leftism in general, but socialism and communism is it's kind of a result of being spoiled on this easy credit. When push comes to shove and when there's no longer this easy credit in the world and we're all at the end of a credit bubble, uh, times get hard and these spoiled ideologies will also go away. So it's all due to easy credit, and that is a short-term thing, right? We all will return to historical norms. Now, the U.S. historical norm is protectionism or non-interventionism and rule of law, basically. Um, the rest of the world is not, that's not the case. Uh, the, the long-term historical norm of the rest of the world is a lot of violence and a lot of poverty. Uh, so the rest of the world in this model, in my model, the rest of the world is returning to their historical norms just like the U.S. is. All right. Number four is demographics. So not only are people facing a credit bubble and the end of cheap security and, you know, pretty much a U.S. subsidy on trade, the rest of the world is also facing a demographic collapse. This is China, Japan, Russia, Europe most places in Europe. The U.S. is the best demographics in the developed world, really. And so we're going to have the best economy. We're going to be able to face what's coming the best, like from a demographic standpoint. And one point that I didn't put into the newsletter was the dollar. If you look at the rest of the world collapsing and going back to historical norms of poverty and violence, and the U.S., being able to have the best demographics and face this, what's coming the best, have the best geography, we'll probably have the best economy. Where is that capital going to flow in the meantime, as everything is collapsing? It's not going to go to Russia. People aren't going to be going to the ruble, even when the West is sanctioning Russia and using the financial system. They're still not going to do that. They're not going to go to the yuan and put it in the hands of the CCP. They're going to go to the dollar. The trillions of dollars of value are going to flow out of Europe and Asia into the dollar. And Bitcoin too. That's one reason why Bitcoin is going to do well. All right. So we covered demographics. Um, number six point on the newsletter here is populism is on the rise. And we can see this all around the world. The globalists hate populism. So the spread of liberal democracy, quote-unquote liberal democracy, 
obviously I'm kind of beating a dead horse with this, but you know, Trump was a populist leader and Putin is a populist leader. And who are the most evil men <laughs> in the news? They are populists and the globalists hate the populists. And the reason I believe is not because the globalists are evil. It's because the globalists see what populism does to Europe. So populism in the U.S. is protectionist and prosperous. Those are the two things I picked out. Protectionist and prosperous. European populism, however, is authoritarian and prone to continental war. When the last two times this rise of populism happened? Well, World War II, and before that, Napoleon. Populism is bloody in Europe. Eastern populism is imperialist and repressive, I say, but mainly in China I'm talking about here. So, uh, and China is starting to look more and more like a Chinese empire. You know, Xi is president for life, the way it's set up with uh, districts reporting up to the central CCP in Beijing. It's very imperialistic already, and it'll probably continue that way. Populism versus globalism. That's why the globalists are fighting populism so much because they see it as a route to war, a route to continental war. All right. And number seven, I think this is important. Uh, one of the biggest points for this Ukraine-Russia situation is that Western media, they're a bunch of liars. You're better off believing the opposite, at least in the West. We're talking CNN, Fox, uh, all AP stuff, um, BBC, etc. And in today's world with Google Translate, you can read news from all around the world. And you can see the different biases at play. But the Western mainstream media, they also censor stuff that's against the approved narrative. So the stuff, and, and that can cause a problem. So they are censoring exactly what they're lying about. The more censorship they get, the closer they are to the truth. All right. And another thing is the internet is very good at figuring stuff out. The internet had COVID figured out March of 2020. It took a year and a half, two years to have the same things admitted to in the mainstream media that the, the internet knew and was being censored in March of 2020. Same with this Hunter laptop thing. The internet knew it was correct or uh, legit right away. And it took a year for the mainstream media to admit it. And I thought we learned a lot of this stuff back during COVID. But no, now this Ukraine situation, everybody automatically believes Fox News again. They automatically believe CNN. Plus, Fox News and CNN sound exactly identical on this issue. So you know they're lying to you. They're not even checking. They're just telling you what they want you to hear. If they're right, they're accidentally right. All right, so let's apply this now, uh, this model. Let's go into this, the Russia situation and applying it uh, how I have. So Russia, their geopolitical interest, their main overriding geopolitical interest is strategic depth because they are on, you know, the wide open Asian steppe. It's very indefensible position. So what they want to do is they want to push out their borders 
to get the strategic depth towards defensible positions, towards the mountains and uh, the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea and all that. So they want to push out their borders to those um, depths to protect themselves, you know, to protect the heartland. Because in most cases, when Russia has been invaded, you know, like think about Napoleon and Germany, they just stretched them out, stretched them out, stretched them out. They did the slash and burn retreats, right? And starved out the invaders as they went because uh, Russia's in war, it seems Russia's main assets, not anymore today, but you know, the, the story in the past was just uh, the winter and men. So they always had this very high population relative to other countries in Europe, and they could keep retreating and just let the winter come in and destroy the invading army. So they want this strategic depth um, and defensible borders. So in the case of Ukraine, you know, Ukraine is not acceptable as being so close to the heartland because it's not a defensible border for Russia. And then they wanted to put, you know, NATO wanted to come in there and the EU and put nukes. Even Zelensky started talking about putting nukes in Ukraine pointed at Russia. Um, that was completely unacceptable because there is no strategic depth there. You know, that would be indefensible border. They also have a more collectivist culture because of being kind of on the steps. You know, if you think about uh, nomadic people, they're usually going to be smaller groups and they have a more collectivist mindset because private property is not as much of a thing that you can build up, right? If you're a nomadic people, you're not going to build up large uh, stashes of wealth like you would if you were in, in a trading city, a trading port, or you were, say, even a farmer, and you could build a, a castle and have this land um, passed down generation to generation. On the step, you don't have that. You have less private property, and you have more collectivism. And so that's the kind of, it's just seeded in the geography. So even if a new people come into that area, over a long enough period of time, the geography will breed that into the culture. So, I mean, it's not a surprise that they had the Soviet Union in this area because obviously it's collectivist communism. But it was able to at least last 70 years because of this idea that the steppe provides more collectivist impulses. Anyways, um, their demog uh, Russia's demographics are horrible, and so they have to move sooner rather than later if they want to secure their strategic depth. If they want to push out their borders to defensible borders, they have to move sooner rather than later. But in doing that, they don't want to, to destroy Ukraine. They want to incorporate Ukraine. And to do that, you're not going to bomb indiscriminately. Like the U.S. would go in their objectives, like say in Afghanistan or Iraq or Libya, uh, even Yugoslavia, the, the U.S.'s objective was not to occupy that area. Even though we did occupy, say, Afghanistan and Iraq for a long time, it was not to incorporate it as a 51st state, right? That is what Russia wants to do. They want to incorporate Ukraine into the motherland. So they're not going to go through and indiscriminately bomb. They're going to just slowly turn up the heat 
slowly turn up the heat and uh, get the leaders to surrender, doing the least amount of damage to the local population. I mean, they had all of the power. They had internet. They had cell phone reception. They're, they're, the civilian infrastructure was not hit. So when, when you hear reports in the news that the civilian infrastructure was being targeted or civilians were being targeted by the Western media, they're making these reports. You know it's not true because Western media lies and that's not in the strategic interest of Russia to do that. So you can put two and two together and come up with four. Okay, so Russia or the U.S. is withdrawing from the world. It's not a matter of the U.S. being weak because the U.S. looks very weak. Look how they withdrew from Afghanistan. Um, it's Right now, it's a weakness of will to be the global leader. And even if we wanted to, it would be rough in the case of a credit bubble, right? The whole world is suffering from this credit bubble, and it's very hard to have the will. I mean, it's almost like you can't have the will if you're in this economic situation. So it's not a matter of fact that the U.S. is weak, because if push came to shove and Russia really was completely destroying a country, bombing indiscriminate uh, civilians, the U.S. might find the will. And so Russia doesn't want to do that either. So the U.S. is withdrawing, and, and Putin knows this, Russia knows this. The U.S. influence is waning. And in this era, also, the rest of the world is not in an economic position either. Like, China is not in an economic position to stand up to Russia, even if they wanted to. And neither is Europe. And the U.S. isn't either. I mean, nobody is. We're, the rest of the world is going through this credit uh, collapse, slow, a slow-motion credit collapse. And they do not have the will to stand up. And Russia knows they have somewhat self-sufficient economy. So this was the opportunity to do this. As for sanctions, the oil is still flowing. Right from the get-go, I told the people on Discord, I said, as long as the oil is still flowing, these sanctions are make-believe. Maybe not make-believe, but they're, in the grand scheme of things, they are insignificant. That has been the basic result so far. The banks get sanctioned, well, they can go through other banks in Russia. It, not all banks in Russia got kicked off of SWIFT, only a select few. And <laughs> maybe they didn't even enforce it. We don't know exactly. But they, these banks could send money through other banks. I would say the biggest effect of the sanctions was companies actually coming out of Russia. So Visa MasterCard had a little effect. But the biggest effect is like Halliburton and BP and these other foreign oil companies leaving. Like I talked about uh, Kazakhstan, I think I talked about Kazakhstan in the previous episode, almost all of their oil industry in Kazakhstan is foreign owned and foreign operated. So in a case where, you know, foreign owned and operated expertise and companies would come out of Kazakhstan, they would their oil production would drop off a cliff. And it's very similar in Russia, it's not 100%. But there is a lot of foreign expertise and foreign companies that are in charge of these wells and drilling in Russia. So when they pull out, that is probably the biggest sanction right there. And we'll probably see Russian oil production drop quite significantly. 
in the buildup to this whole situation for the last six months or last nine months or whatever, they were talking about maybe increasing sanctions on Russia and they couldn't do it. The, the Europeans decided against it. The Germans decided against it because they said, look, if we put sanctions on Russia, we're going to crash our own economy. So they knew that going into this. So why would they do this? They decided to do pinpoint sanctions that look really good in the headlines. Oh my God, they sanctioned 100 Russian diplomats. They sanctioned 14 Russian banks. But it, it, it doesn't have the effect that the lay public associates with that headline because they knew beforehand that if they used massive sanctions on Russia, they would crash their own economies. So these sanctions were, they were only half effective. And Russia is in a more strategic position to take advantage of this situation. Okay, and I want to say one more thing about you know, rerouting oil to China and China will buy whatever Russia has to offer and all this stuff. That is not the case because you can't just ship oil to another country at the drop of a hat. Okay. Most of that oil and gas that's going to Europe is going through pipelines. If you want to send Russian oil to China, you either need pipelines, which they do have some in the, in the Eastern side of Russia. They do have some pipelines to China, but not from the oil fields in the West and around the Caspian and all that. So you have to come up with a new way to do things. And they've talked about maybe loading it on ships and sailing it all the way around the world from the Baltic Sea around Africa to China. They've actually talked about doing that. I mean, that, how expensive is that relative to the pipelines. There is no way to get it all to China. And if Halliburton and BP and these other uh, Western expertise companies are leaving, then the output's going to drop anyway. So it is not the case that all of this oil will be going to China. It's that it's the case that most of this oil will come off the market and it will only come back on the market once everything is settled, which I think will be relatively quickly because Russia is just outclassing the military and what initially appeared as a united NATO against Russia and a united UN against Russia. Now it's a 50-50 split. And I think if you look at population of the world, it's more people, more population is on the side of Russia. I mean, there's nobody, I think in even the Western hemisphere, the backyard of the United States, there's no other country besides Canada that is on board with all this stuff that the U.S. is doing. I, I remember listening to podcasts and different things from experts. These are think tank experts. Of course, they're credentialed Western elites. And they're saying that the whole world is against Russia. And they're saying, how can Russia win this? He's in a quagmire. He can't get out. No, that's not the case. He is in complete control of this. I mean, who would you rather play chess against, Biden or Putin? Who would you want on your strategic cabinet, Putin or Biden? And I'm not saying they're right, okay? Remember, this is an amoral philosophy. I'm just telling you how I see it, how I think that the reality is. So anyway, that's enough for this one, guys. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you on the next one.